Okay, so we are in a series called The Christmas Revelation. And the point of that series is pretty basic and yet profound. We want to look at some key stories from the first Christmas, the accounts in the Gospels, and then draw out the implications for us today. And this morning we're going to be looking at two announcements, one given to Mary, one given to Joseph. We'll be looking at them in that order because chronologically that's how they happen in the story. And we're doing so uh, with eyes and ears and hearts that are open and ready and responsive to say, what is new here for me? What is fresh? What What do I need to hear from this text? We believe that God's word is living and active. And whether you've heard this story a hundred times or you've just sort of seen the iconography of the baby Jesus in the manger, and you actually have never looked into the scriptural text and what it teaches about uh, this event, we're glad you're here, and this is an awesome opportunity to grow and learn and allow God to kind of place something on our hearts. So let me open up in a time of uh, just in a quick word of prayer, and then I'm going to throw it over to Rick to do the first reading. God, we thank you for this chance to gather virtually We thank you for this church, for this opportunity to teach and explore your word. And God, we come into this story a little bit different this year because we're entering it with all of us through the lens of being in the midst of these challenging times through a pandemic. And I just pray that whatever distractions are um, kind of surfacing in our minds, in our hearts, that you would uh, speak peace over them. Give us clarity and focus this morning. And as we grapple and feed upon your word, may it do work in us. May it um, leave us changed and encouraged and challenged. God, we love you and we just pray and ask for your blessing on our time together so that uh, our hearts can um, can be strengthened and we can come out of this time in a space where we are more excited, more inspired, and more devoted to you, more committed to your mission. We thank you for the good things that you're going to show us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Rick, why don't you get us started with the reading? I'm going to see if I can get the text on the screen for those who might need it, but it's Luke chapter 1. Take it away. All right, Luke chapter 1, and scroll down to verses uh, 26 to 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. The word of the Lord. Hmm. So, Jeff, in that first account, what, uh, what was something that stood out to you? Yeah, obviously there's a lot of things. The story is familiar to me. But again, such a good practice of having to stay with it day after day after day. And just when you feel like you're like, oh, I think I've pretty much exhausted all that there is. There's another angle that God shows you. It's amazing. Um, one of the things that I think it's really important to highlight is in all of Luke's gospel, um, part of the way that Luke structures his account of the life of Jesus is to highlight the fact that God um, has a special kind of care and heart for the lowly. And you see this right off the bat with this annunciation to Mary that God loves the little and the lost and the forgotten and the ignored. And this is a big theme that Luke builds on in his gospel. But in many ways, it starts here. And I think that's an awesome um, implication of the Christmas story is that if you find yourself feeling little and lost and forgotten and ignored by the world and by the broader culture, by people in your life, like Christmas is for you. God sees you. And uh, that was a message that I found resonating in my heart in new ways as I prepared for this. Um, so that, that was one thing that I wanted to highlight that, that you know, Christmas is for the lowly and the little, and um, that's good news. If you don't find yourself mighty and strong and having it all together, what about you? Yeah, I think um, I highlighted a similar strand, and, and that was just the contrast between Zechariah and Mary, which I think speaks to what you just said. Yeah. But if you read the first part of the story, um, you know, there's there's like a parallel story just before the section that we read where um, this elderly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, um, also get a visitation from this angel, and they are also promised a child in their old age. But just the contrast between Zechariah and Mary, you know, Zechariah is this prominent, important religious leader. He's got status. He's got influence. And Mary is this, um, she's a teenager. Um, mm. And she's from this little podunk town that isn't significant, and she doesn't have an impressive resume. And yet Zechariah, when he gets the visitation from the angel um, that his wife will, will have a child, he doesn't actually believe it. Yeah. And Mary, who doesn't have a lot of that religious training and education, she responds with, with great faith. Mm -hmm. That's so awesome. I think, yeah, God, and you see this throughout Scripture, but it really comes into focus here that God so often kind of starts at the bottom in the places that you wouldn't expect God to move as his plan is unfolding. You think he's going to um, do things in a way that uh, are tapping the, the influencers within culture. And yet here he comes to this teenager. And I think to me, one of the lessons there is we have to be very careful if we look at ourselves and to your point, Rick, you look at our resume of what we bring to the table and it doesn't look like much, it's very important that we remember this story and not fall into the trap of thinking, well, like God couldn't use someone like me because I don't have the training, I'm not smart enough, I don't have the status, I don't have the network, 
I don't have the, you, you know, you fill in the blank. Um, God can absolutely use someone like you. And then again, that's part of the embedded promise of Christmas is that God comes to dwell in someone who's off the radar of all the cultural and religious powers. And I think just meditating on that and thinking about that in the context of your own life is just deeply, deeply encouraging. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that I thought to mention, I try and think about the, um, I try and put myself in the shoes of the characters and, and think through the long game of the story. You know, Mary, for however long she's been alive, 12, 13, 14, 15 years, um, she was every day just being faithful to God and cultivating a godly walk. And what she couldn't see is how God was using that to prepare her for something really, really important. And I thought, how often is that true in my life where the day in front of me seems pretty normal and then the week seems normal and the month seems normal and I don't necessarily have a perception of God preparing me for some thing in the future. But I thought, you know, our faithfulness to Jesus in the everyday things really, really matters. And I think that's a bit of a subtext to the story too. We'll see it in Joseph too. He's called a righteous man. Mm-hmm. That these decisions that they were making every day to walk humbly before God and to seek to honor him, that on some level um, placed the favor of God on them where God said, I can trust these people because they've been faithful in little things. Yeah, that's so good to highlight that. Um, one of the other things that, that stood out to me was I spent a little bit of time thinking through the skeptic, right? The skeptic who would read the story. And, and one of the doctrines that has been most criticized um, is this, this doctrine of Mary's virgin birth, right? Mm. Um, the reasoning goes it's humanly impossible. And that's, and that's true if we're trying to explain the story uh, by what's only humanly possible. Mm-hmm. But, but that's the point of this story is that what is humanly possible is actually possible if our belief system has room for something greater than ourselves. Um, if we believe that there is a God who is this creative force behind the whole universe, um, if we believe in that kind of a God that breathed life into all of creation without our help, then um, only then can we see how this same God can generate a life within a womb without the help of a man. Mm. And... Um, you know, some people read this story, and just to clarify, you know, this isn't a crude kind of story of the of the Holy Spirit having, like, a sexual relation with Mary. This is about the very God who breathes life into creation in, in the beginning, in Genesis, is the same life-giving presence that generates life within Mary. Um, and so, again, it just emphasizes what is humanly impossible is possible with mm. God. And that gets kind of reiterated in verses 36 and 37, um, where the angel confirms that nothing is impossible with God, or in this translation it says, his word will not fail. Yeah. Um, just as Mary will give birth as a virgin, so too her her old relative, who's far beyond the age of, of um, getting pregnant, she will also have a child. And as I was kind of steeping in that portion of the story, I loved what this one theologian, uh, Stanley Hauerwas, had to say. And he just said, you know, what should startle us, what should stun us is, is not that, the, that Mary is a virgin, but that God refuses to abandon us, that he comes into creation to be with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. I love, I love that theme of, um, you know, it starts with Zechariah and Elizabeth, but God bringing about life where 
there's no natural opportunity for life to emerge. And with Elizabeth, it's because she's barren. And with Mary, it's because she's never been with a man. And God is, is doing this to say, you know, I, I've made the rules. I can bend the rules. I can uh, leapfrog over the rules because I am the creator. And I'm bringing life into places that wouldn't naturally um, produce light. And that's a huge parallel to what it means to be a Christian. God is putting a light in us that we can't summon from within ourselves. Okay, why don't we look at the next passage. This is the announcement to Joseph. I'll put it on the screen. This is in Matthew chapter 1. So if you just move backwards in the Bible a little bit, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four sequential gospels in the New Testament. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was a faithful to the law and yet did, not, uh, yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. So as we look at that announcement to Joseph, Rick, what were some things that stood out to you? I think the first thing that kind of jumped out at me was verse 21. And I sat there for quite some time where it says, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And um, in, in English, this verse doesn't quite have the same impact that, that it does in its original language. The name Jesus in, in Hebrew and Greek um, means God saves. So the verse would have actually sounded something like this. You are to give him the name God saves because he will save his people from their sins. Mm. And so this is a really bold statement, uh, but it also would have maybe caused the original audience to kind of perk up their attention and scratch their heads a little bit uh, because they would be asking, okay, wait a minute, who who is going to save God's people? people is is god going to save his people or is god saves going to save god's people and i kind of chuckled because i was remembering this old comedy skit and it's kind of like um i don't know if you've ever seen this old skit it's a baseball comedy skit called who's on first by abbott oh, yeah, and costello yeah yep. yeah there's these um the players names on first base is who and the player's name on second base is what and the player's name on third base is i don't know and so this guy wants to know, get to know the players of the team, so he asks the manager, right, like, can you tell me their names? And he says, yeah, it's, uh, who's on first, what's on second, and I don't know who's on third. He said, well, that's what I want to know. And he's like, who's on first? Exactly. No, I'm asking who's on first. Yeah, and so yeah. there's like this hilarious back and forth, and that's kind of what I imagine um, that similar kind of confusion is going on here, is, is saying, wait a minute, who who's actually going to save God's people? Is it God, Yahweh, or God saves, Yahweh saves. Mm. And I think this is a really creative way that Matthew 
um, makes this bold statement and he introduces to his original audience that this is the person through whom God is going to fulfill all the prophecies of their um, of the Hebrew scriptures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? it's re- yeah, it's very on the nose in terms of his name, but it does speak to the definitive characteristic of Jesus' life. Jesus is going to do many things. He's going to fulfill the law. He is going to give us a template for what a fully human being uh, looks like. Um, he, uh, he's going to accomplish and teach many important things, but at the root of his identity is that he's come to save people from their sin. And so if we don't sort of reverse engineer all of Jesus' life from that central place, it's easy to get kind of confused or, again, to end up with a sort of a vague, low-resolution understanding of who Jesus understood himself to be and what his mission is about, which is ultimately the cross and resurrection. Mm-hmm. When I think of this story, I kind of paused, actually, after the first verse where it talked about how Mary's pledged to be Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So there's a gap there between that realization and who knows how long the gap is, but then the angel comes to Joseph. And in that gap, Joseph's thrown this huge curveball, right? I mean, if you think about um, obviously excited, getting married, you have this vision of what lies ahead of you in terms of your life. You're starting to anticipate where this script is going. And we also don't really know his initial emotional reaction to being told that I'm with child, but her saying to him, I had this vision from an angel. Um, it, it, it's, I think it's unlikely, knowing the human heart, that you would hear that and be like, oh, totally. You're totally trusting, right? Yeah. Like, um, and I was thinking about that from sort of that human dimension and realizing um, you know, this is a huge gut punch for him. Right before this angel announces, and before there's some sense of clarity on what is going on, um, Scripture says he's righteous, he's faithful to the law, he's done nothing wrong, and yet this uh, out of left field um, wrench thrown into the gears of their life, his life, and I thought, you know, isn't that? A, I mean, to me, it's instructive because often when God's at work it doesn't necessarily mean things are going smoothly or according to how we would imagine it would play out, right? Like if you could stop Joseph in that moment in those first few hours or days after hearing this news and being like, I know this looks chaotic. I know it looks like all, everything is uh, just unraveling before you. Uh, it's, you're actually, God's doing a, a mighty powerful work. And there's just such a dissonance there. But I found myself thinking about that because I need to remember that what often first maybe appears in my life or comes into my life as something negative or bad or a curveball to the plans which seem self-evidently good and like this is the way things should go. And if God was blessing my life, I'd continue to go in this direction. And then there's a redirection to not be quick to lament that, but to say, oh, maybe God is up to something here and maybe I need to be patient and maybe I need to wait until I have greater clarity later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a huge part of that story, right? Just Joseph's Joseph's character just stands out in that story, both yeah. both before he even believes Mary. You know, he he it says he decided to divorce her quietly, and which he doesn't have to do. Which he doesn't have to do, yeah. and um, but he does by law, by Roman, Greek, and Jewish law. Um, you had to divorce a wife who was unfaithful to you, 
and you could make it ugly and public and save yourself the yeah. honor. You yeah, know? put all the shame on her yeah. and then basically condemn her to a life of um, just tremendous suffering because yeah. in an honor-shame culture, to bear that kind of shame is almost irredeemable. And to clear the air for yourself, to say, Absolutely. I had nothing to do with this. I'm going to keep my honor. But it's very clear that he, he actually cares for her and decides to do it quietly. Um, and then after, after the vision from the angel, he, he obeys. He stays with her. And... Which is another huge risk because you are mm-hmm. taking part of that shame on yeah. in one sense. Or, or the, at least the rumors yep. that, um, you know, because uh, people are going to realize. I mean, the, part of the reason why there's two announcements is because Joseph and Mary are never together alone before marriage in the same place. Mm-hmm. So people are going to put it together and say, well, if they've never been together alone obviously mary's been together with someone and in john 8 actually the pharisees do this um thing where jesus is talking about being children of abraham and they sort of throw this backhanded jab at him and saying well we are children of abraham we're not illegitimate children Mm. and it kind of hangs there where they're kind of like accusing jesus publicly of being like oh if if we're going to talk about being children and who's a children of abraham who's a children of faith We'd rather not be lectured by an illegitimate child ourselves. So this is something that carries through. But again, it speaks to Joseph's character that on some level he knows he's going to have to absorb this, but he does it initially for Mary's sake, but then ultimately to honor God. It's amazing. Yeah, that's really good. Um, Another thing that I kind of, uh, that stood out to me was was just that phrase, Back to verse 21, but, but that latter end that he's, Jesus came to save his people from his sin. And, um, you know, what is sin? This passage says that he's going to save his people from his sin. And that's kind of a loaded word that many people, many Christians have kind of had a hard time actually putting the finger on, like, what exactly is sin? Um, and it simply means to fail, right? Or, or as we were talking earlier this week, you reminded me, it's like, yeah, to miss the mark. Um, God designed humans to partner with him and doing amazing things in the world to love him to love one another to care for creation to reflect his image in the universe in the world and humans have failed at that humans haven't wanted to partner with god uh, and his purpose for humanity and have done a poor job of caring for creation and caring for one another and it's become this cutthroat world where we have become our own gods or we've allowed lesser things uh, like money or sex or power to become our gods. And these lesser gods are fueled by, by a self-centeredness, by, by greed, which has led to all kinds of damage that humans do to one another and to creation, right? And so in that sense, we've missed the mark of what God has designed us for. Um, and it's this vicious, vicious cycle that we as humans can't seem to get out of. Mm-hmm. And that is what Jesus came in to save us from. Um, so yeah, that really stood out to me just to kind of sit with what are we talking about with sin? Like, is it just saying a bad word or saying a white mm-hmm. lie, but this bigger narrative of we've missed the mark of what we're actually designed for. And Jesus gets us out of that, that vicious cycle. Yeah. Whether we are a believer or not, I think it's, I think it would do everyone well to do a little bit more digging into theologically what that term means. Cause most people, I think tend to um, have a very narrow and stunted understanding or association with it, right? It's something where it's like, oh, this is shameful, like, oh, naughty, naughty, doing ba- bad things. Or we have particular sins that uh, either within the Christian subculture and the broader subculture, like these are really bad, but we still don't really use the word a lot for different reasons. But it's a really 
robust word. And I think the Bible uses it intentionally because it holds together all these different dynamics that help us to make sense if, if we do the, the intellectual work of thinking through it and observing what's happening around us and within us to, to realize, oh yeah, we really do need rescue. Mm-hmm. Like we're not just a few tweaks away from living in a utopia. Like God himself, like Emmanuel, God with us, God has to come and do for us what we can't do for ourselves, mm-hmm. right? God, you know, God can see cosmic history unfolding and he's not saying there, oh yeah, given enough time and enough amendments, they'll, they'll figure it out. He's saying, I need to intervene because sin, part of what sin's power does in us is it self-deceives us mm-hmm. into thinking like, yeah, no, we, we can do it. We're autonomous. I, I, maybe I don't even need other people in my life. I certainly don't need God. I can figure it out. And now when you have technology like a phone that gives you access to more information than has ever been recorded physically in human history, mm-hmm. you know, you start, you can puff up with this pride that is born of this uh, sinful root where we're like, yeah, we can, we can figure this out. And again, the Christmas story drives us, it, it kind of puts us in a corner to realize, yeah, no, like this, this is a confrontational message against that arrogance that would assume we can live for God and we can rescue ourselves from the poison, the corruption, the brokenness. I mean, there's different angles to it, right? But we all kind of realize that if we're self-aware at all, that something is profoundly wrong. And while we can make changes in our lives, many of them can be good. There's still, Scripture says, something underneath that is fueling a, a, a rot and a corruption that we need help with, we need cleansing for, we need deliverance from. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I thought the, the Emmanuel thing kind of dovetails with what you were saying in terms of this other title for God. You know, he's Jesus. He's going to save his people from their sins. But his name is also, in a sense, Emmanuel, God with us. So, again, just to make sure we have eyes to see it, because it's hidden in plain sight, I think, in these texts, just almost verse after verse through the miracles, through the names, what Jesus does, how he does it, there's this continual reinforcement that he is God. He is not simply one of many prophets. Um, He's not just the next kind of prophet or a new upgrade as humanity's progressing. He is uh, God come in human form to live uh, a, a perfect life and to live through his life a perfect sacrificial self-giving love. Um, as we kind of begin to move into application, what, what was the, uh, maybe the one thing that for you per, at a personal level really struck you about this passage? Like what for this Christmas season out of this passage did you feel like God was impressing on your heart? Yeah, you know, I think I think you touched on that right at the beginning is just how God goes out of his way to use to use the lowly, to use the humble, to use those who don't have uh much to offer in terms of what society would view. Um and you know, that's that's always been a bit of a struggle of myself. I'm self-critical when it comes to doing important things or succeeding at something uh worthwhile. I've sometimes been a little quick to to think, you know, I'm not good enough or somebody else is going to be better at that than me or, um, you know, kind of in that kind of a thought pattern. And I know that's that's probably something that a lot of people um, struggle with. But what struck me is that 
God-chosen, unqualified, unprepared, and in the eyes of society, uh, an insignificant teenage girl. Un- unworthy. Yeah. From like a religious status point of view. Yeah. yeah. To bring about the greatest thing in, in human history. And we see God use these kinds of people throughout Scripture. He qualifies the unqualified. He prepares mm. the unprepared. Um, he's not asking for you know, the most impressive resume for him to use you. Quite the contrary, all he asks for uh, and all that Mary needs to give him is availability and willingness. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what Mary does. Um, is she just says, I am the Lord's servant. Use me as, you, yeah. as your word may have it. Yeah, powerful yeah. surrender. So that was just a, an encouragement and a reminder to me that, yeah, it really is a dependence on God and he can use whoever. Yeah. That's excellent. I think for me, um, one of the things that I that really stood out to me at a personal level was for both Mary and Joseph when those announcements happen. You know, there's a on some level they have to realize their life is no longer going to pan out the way they thought it it would, and um, that's not the life Mary would have chosen. It's not the life Joseph would have chosen, and all of the uh, suffering and heartache that is going to come with it. Um, and that was a good reminder to me, especially as maybe a, a, th- a three on the Enneagram. I'm, I'm pretty ambitious. I'm pretty idealistic. I can kind of get into a trap of having this preferred picture of the future where I'm like, this is the life that if I was like fully and genuinely blessed, this is where God would lead me. And then God has thrown these different curveballs at different points in my life. And to realize, like, God is so good. Like, he kind of (laughs) rescues us in a lot of ways. He's rescued me from that preferred picture, which I thought that's what I wanted. And now I find myself in a place where I'm like, I I would have never engineered this story. Mm. But I see God's hand, and I'm glad that, at least in my more faithful moments, I was willing to go along with it. I'm not always, to be honest. I mean, there's definitely times where that script change happens it's like a record scratch and you're like oh wait a second i thought at least in this part of my life this is kind of the direction that we were going and then god introduces something where you realize oh this is going to be very different for a long time but where this challenged me was not to just trust that not to just obey god in that moment but to also be grateful right like mary sings this song after this passage where she celebrates um, in a sense, this uh, out of uh, out of nowhere news, and says like, "Wow, look at how amazing! Look what God is doing in my life." And her focus is on giving thanks to God in anticipation for the things that are happening. And for me, that's important to remember when my plan, my picture, starts to get amended or even completely broken up and changed. That that is being done by God both for his glory, but also for my good. And I can, in advance, start saying, like, praise God. Like, I don't see where this is going. I'm not trying to pretend that this isn't scary. But because I've seen God's faithfulness and how he uses curveballs in people's lives to bring about something amazing, Mm -hmm. I'm going to start living into that gratitude and anticipation, even if I can't trace exactly where things are going. That's so good. What about for a community, for a church? Is there a theme that uh, you think you would want to invite our church to be praying into, thinking through out of, the, out of these passages? Yeah, I, I think there would be a lot of different 
applications here, but the way I saw it was was kind of a similar invitation to what I saw in my own life, and and that is first to recognize that that God, you know, you read this story, and God could have used the most powerful and prominent, impressive people to usher in the birth of His Son. That's probably how we would have done it if we would have made up this story, yep. right? Um, but He went to great lengths to um, to identify with the most humble people, and that. The ones who didn't have an impressive resume, as we already mentioned, and I think that's a that's a reflection of who God is. Um, one commentator he says, "God may be the God of the universe, but He's no elitist," mm. and, and I love that. In the yeah, case of Mary, she's she's willing and available to be used by God for His purposes, knowing full well that she doesn't have, you know, a lot to offer, a lot of impressive things to offer, and she responds with her availability and her willingness to go along with God's plans. Um, I think not because she's super strong and Mm self-confident, but she actually trusts the word of the angel, and that is, do not be afraid. God's favor or grace is with you, Mm -hmm. and God promises to be with you. And so I think we as Christians, um, we can lean into those promises too. Scripture is saturated with God's grace for us, with God's presence with us. And the fact that he will be with us, that's more than just a comforting, like, you know, you got this kind of uh, presence, but God's real presence through his spirit is with us. And um, Mm. so as a church, to then lean into what is God calling us to and to be willing to say, okay, God, I don't feel prepared for this. I don't really know what this is going to look like. But I trust that your grace is for me. I trust that you are with me. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say yes. You know? yeah, that's yeah. so good. I mean, there's almost a complete you know, Venn diagram overlap between what I had as well. I had trust and obey. I remember mm-hmm. when I first became a Christian, went to an Anglican church, and there was a lovely uh, woman who would lead Sunday school, and I was helping to teach Sunday school at that time. And almost every week we would sing trust and obey. Trust and obey, <laughs> or there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. And I think for both Mary and Joseph, that willingness to trust and obey, even when the script is scary, when it changes radically, right? We're living in a pandemic now where our script for this Christmas has changed. Our script for 2021 has changed. Mm-hmm. For our families' lives, maybe our marriages, uh, uh, our, our jobs. But we can still trust and obey, and we're called to do that. And, and, and totally, it starts with that with hearing saying, God, can you impress this message into my heart? Like, don't be afraid. You are highly favored. Like, yes, Mary's highly favored, but because of what Jesus has done now, we're all highly favored. We all have access to God's power living within us and that comfort and peace and, uh, of Christ. And yet, uh, we're not, not and yet. And furthermore, the way I think we, for me at least, I would invite our church, as I'm trying to challenge myself, is to say, what does it look like for me to move into this Christmas season with a greater intentionality towards a posture of willingness, right? You can essentially live willfully, where you're like, my will be done, or willingly, right? Your will be done, God. Mm -hmm. And there's always a a grappling there, but this is a good text that pulls me back into, God can do beautiful, powerful, amazing things if we let go of our preferred picture, our script, our sense of entitlement, our sense of autonomy, and say, you know what, at the end of the day, 
I'm God's servant. I belong to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And therefore, use my life as a conduit of blessing in the world. Yeah. I think it's amazing. Rick, would you be willing to close us off in prayer? Sure. And then I'll send us off with a benediction. Sounds good. God, we thank you for this story. Um, for the Christmas story, Lord, that maybe isn't quite uh, accurately reflected in our little decorative um, nativity scenes. Uh, God, this was a messy and dark and scary time. And God, you just show through this story that you go to great lengths uh, to be with, with us as humans. Um, and you choose those who think they don't have enough to offer. Um, you are a God for everyone. And God, we just thank you that you don't abandon us, that, that you keep pursuing us. And you've shown this by becoming um, a vulnerable baby. And, and you lived in the shoes of, of being a real human. And God, would this story of, of Christmas bring us hope? And would you teach us to respond the way Mary and Joseph did when you call us? And that is to say, Lord, I am here. Mm -hmm. I trust that you are with me. I trust that your grace is upon me. And I know that you are in control. Help me to partner with what you want in my life. Mm -hmm. So I just pray that for all of us. And I pray a blessing over this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may you ponder and celebrate the truth that God has come near. And may you ponder and celebrate the truth that God has come near for you, especially if you're little and lost and forgotten or ignored. And may you hear his invitation to rescue and eternal hope and to live without fear. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. God bless, guys. We love you. Have a great Christmas. Take care.